This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Forget the presidential candidates. There's another important political figure that no one is talking about, the migrant. At least that's what Thomas Nail wants to prove in his new book, The Figure of the Migrant. He is an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Denver. And Nail says with so many migrants and so many ways to become a migrant, more attention should be paid to migration. Uh, Welcome to Colorado Matters. Thanks for having me, Nathan. You were inspired to write this book uh, while you were working with refugees in Canada. Uh, What was it about your experience that made you write this book? Well, as a philosopher, as a political philosopher, I was reading some of literature and political philosophy, and I noticed a striking gap, namely that there was almost no mention of migration and figures of the migrant in political theory. Um, I am also an activist, and my first intuition was, I should just get up and move to the city with the highest population of migrants and see what's missing from political theory. Um, And that's what I did. Um, Thanks to a scholarship, I moved to Toronto, which at the time, I think these things fluctuate, but it was the per capita highest population of migrants in a single city. Um, I didn't know that uh, until I started doing this research and (laughs) found out. So I went there to work with the activist group known as Illegal in Canada. And the figure of the migrant, it's a philosophical text. It is quite quite the, the book. Briefly, what was your goal in writing this? Well, there was twofold goal, um, okay. and it has to do with what was missing, what I found missing in the literature specifically, um, but obviously popular discourse as well. Um, the first one is that the migrant was treated as, if it was ever treated, as a kind of exceptional figure. There's a small population of exceptional things and everything works smoothly except for this one type of person who just doesn't fit. Um, That was the first problem is that it was treated exceptionally. Um, And it seemed to me that after working with these activists that there was this hardly constituted an exception in many ways. Um, And I'll say a bit more in a second. Um, The second one is that the the migrant was treated as – and migration as a sort of relatively recent historical phenomenon, 19th century. Most of the literature dealing with migration starts in the 19th century, the Great Migration to America, you know, and so on. Um, And those were the two problems and the two gaps. And I wondered what had happened before and what more there was to the story. Um, And so my goal uh, in writing the book was to answer those two questions. Um, And my answers are sort of the inverse of that gap, which is the first one is, Uh, to show that the migrant wasn't simply exceptional. It wasn't a special marginal case. It was actually a constitutive or constituting figure. It was a sort of political position uh, or a type of person that actually built the foundations of societies. That's interesting. And Uh, Keep going. I'm I'm sorry. And the second one was just to answer the second part of that problem historically was that this is not just a 19th century forward phenomenon. This is a Western history phenomenon that goes all the way back to the beginnings of human civilization. So as long as, as we have been writing about these things, migration has, has been an issue with this. And it has always been constitutive of societies. You use migrant as a sort of catch-all term. It includes refugees and immigrants. But, but aren't there some important differences between these two groups? Absolutely, there are important differences. Um, the reason – There are important differences and I sort of hash that out. There's different degrees. There's different types of expulsion that would characterize any given migrant. The reason why I titled the book The Figure of the Migrant and tried to create such a broad category was that it's – there's a political importance in identifying the common features 
um, and making this a much larger category of political uh, personages uh, than had been um, before. So let me give you one example of why I think it's actually really important to consider refugees and economic migrants both as figures of the migrant. Okay. Is because oftentimes that division, most recently in the case of Syrian refugees coming into uh, Europe, um, the debate all of a sudden exploded and now everyone's trying to distinguish, well, are they an economic migrant or are they an asylum-seeking uh, political refugee? Now, these types of divisions between environmental refugee, political refugee, economic refugee, these are categories all sort of invented by societies in order to prioritize and privilege types of migrants over others. And I worry – I worry about the the sort of the, the the structure of inequality and exclusion that's produced by cutting up different types of migrants in those categories. And we're going to get to economic migrants in, in just a minute. I want to go back to the to the title of your book there, the figure of the migrant, and and you call the migrant the political figure of our time. And that one reason this is sheer number of migrants today, as you've mentioned, more than at any other time in in, in our history. What who do you consider a migrant in, in today's world? Well, this would be a lot of people. I would say increasingly we are all becoming migrants um, to one degree or another and it's very important to distinguish that degree and also different um, types of expulsion. We experience different types of expulsion to different degrees and I know we'll – you know, maybe we'll get to that in just a second. Um, but let me say just some reasons why I think that we are all becoming migrants. Yeah. Today, people move – farther distances more often than ever before in human history. That is one major reason and some specific examples would be commuting. Average global commute time is like 40 minutes. Global commute times and commute times are only increasing um, historically. We move houses. We change location. Even if we're not moving between international borders, that's that's not exactly – I mean that's an important distinction to make. Right. But in general, we often are moving more often than we have before in terms of housing and so on. Tourism. The tourism industry has absolutely exploded with all kinds of transportation developments and so on. The housing crisis, to say a more, uh, a more darker one, the forecl home foreclosures in the United States and around the world resulted in the removal of people from their homes – Hundreds of thousands, millions at the global level removed from their homes and forcibly moved to find some other place to live. But, That's, but uh, it's interesting how you're calling commuting migration and, and being a migrant in that sense. It's, I mean some people I think may take issue with that. I think, yeah, they ought to um, because this is the question of degree. I, I think it's important to say and notice that movement is a constitutive feature of social life. And also we can look uh, – I mean, we obviously wouldn't want to say that a commuter is somehow the same type of migrant as a Syrian asylum seeker. Right. I'm absolutely the first to say that. Um, uh, on the other hand, I think there's a danger in, in separating those two radically and saying, well, there's those poor unfortunate asylum seekers. But then there are these other people which are not actually migrants. They just have to constantly move all the time and commute hours back and forth to work and so on. That somehow that movement itself is not counted. Um, and what we're talking about at the global scale, hundreds, probably millions of hours spent in a car doing nothing. Say that your philosophy catches on and people think of themselves as migrants. What do they gain from that? Well, uh, if I'm right um, and if the thesis of the book is right that migration and my figures of the migrant have been historically constitutive, um, which is to say the founding conditions of almost every major Western society, if that's right – um, I think we ought – one 
normative consequence or you know value consequence that would follow from that is we should probably treat them as such. And what that would mean specifically is treating all people equally regardless of status. Um, concretely, what that would mean uh, in several cases, um, the right to move freely, the right to work, the right to vote, the right to drive a car. Um, um, obviously, there'd be larger consequences including tearing down the U.S.-Mexico border wall might be one of those things. Um, Yes. And we'll get we'll get to that here in a moment. I do want to take a break. I'm speaking with you, Associate Professor Thomas Nail, about his new book, The Figure of the Migrant. When we return, we'll dive into specifics about immigration today and how his book touches on that. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Public Radio and Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking to Thomas Nail. He's an associate professor of uh, philosophy at DU. And his new book, The Figure of the Migrant, takes a fresh look at historic and contemporary migration. And we've talked about migration and migrants. What's the climate now between the presidential candidates currently, in your eyes? Where do you see the political conversation going now? Well, unfortunately, on the left and on the right, Democrats and Republicans, the conversation about migration remains in this realm of exceptional figure who we have to do something about. But um, this is not a, a, a constituting issue. These are not a group of people which are basically sustaining the entire country. It's a, well, there's exceptional people. How do we manage their arrival and departure? Now, obviously, some folks on the extreme side, on the, on the, on the extreme side like Donald Trump would like to build a larger wall. On the other side, you have more democratic sort of, you know, Hillary Clinton's reforms. Oh, we'll just, we'll have a, a more open guest worker process. Nobody's talking about opening the border. Nobody's talking about amnesty. Nobody is recognizing in a legitimate way the political status of these people who are here constituting the society that we're in. There's no recognition paid to their foundational role. Um, it's just they, they're this exception to be managed. Um, and it's these constructs that have already existed for for many, many, many years. And you're saying there's a there's a, a vital change that needs to take place in that sense, in terms of thinking, correct? Exactly. So y you've said in your book the phrase "illegal immigrant" is a misnomer that someone can't be illegal just by existing. What do you What do you mean by that? Well, so the term and um, most legal scholars now recognize this. Pre 1970s, there was actually there were laws on, in the U.S. in U.S. law that involved people. Uh, being illegal. For example, vagrants were considered to be being illegal, even though they weren't doing anything. That's the difference between being and doing. After the 1970s in Florida, there was a massive change in the laws. And now it's accepted among legal scholars that one, it's anti-constitutional to uh, be illegal. If one has not committed an illegal act, um, broken any law, one can't be by virtue of their own existence uh, in illegal. It's not a crime to exist. It's only a crime to commit an action which is illegal. But the term, of course, is thrown around quite a bit. And that's, that's definitely uh, – what misconceptions then in that regards do you hear from your students at DU about immigration and, and, and immigrants in that sense? Oh, uh, well, a lot of them, um, which really? is why one of the first things that I hand out to the students is a fact and myth sheet, um, which is a collection of you know peer-reviewed research, polls, all scholarship supporting these particular facts, which are not really disputed in the field, but you'll hear them all over the media and their popular ideology. One of them is that migrants drain social services, that they, they take from the social service system. Um, and this is just empirically not true. Um, when you take a look at the actual numbers, migrants – well, this is related to the other one. Migrants don't pay taxes. 
another completely false misconception. Migrants do pay taxes, and actually they pay more taxes. Migrants paid more taxes than General Electric did last year. Um, General Electric paid zero. Migrants are paying way more than that, and the difference, the big difference between many migrants who are basically paying taxes under false social security numbers, they're contributing to this huge pool of tax money, um, and they are not drawing back out of it because they are not the recipients of that. Uh, they can't be proper recipients of their tax returns or refunds. So, so you're saying that they constitute a part of society, and, and you mentioned that throughout your book that, they, that that migrants constitute society. What do you mean by that? I mean that they are the in 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 a variety of ways they are socially constitutive, which is to say they're human beings who exist and live with us, and um, they uh, they are neighbors. They are the people you work with and you see, and they have a social uh, constitutive. Um, Function that are economically constitutive, which is maybe the very obvious one, which is that every there's so many major sectors of our society which would entirely collapse without uh, migrants. Um, there's a whole documentary called "A Day Without a Migrant" that shows all of the different sectors of society: construction, janitorial work, all of those things would collapse without migrants. This book seems to be a paradigm shift, that you're shifting the way people think about political thought. Um, with that said, is there a practical takeaway from your book? Of course, it's one thing to be uh, in political theory. It is one thing to put that into actual practical existence. Is that something that, that you're thinking about? Absolutely. Um, How so? It's a, it's a much larger project, and I most certainly wouldn't, wouldn't want to say this is the utopian model. This is what it would look like if we did X, Y, and Z. It's not my place to say. It's our place to say. It's everyone's place. But everyone isn't going to have a say if everyone isn't treated equally in the society in which they live. So I would say that the very beginnings of any shift have to have the practical condition that everyone, regardless of status, should be treated equally in all regards of social life, the life that they are constitutive of. And I, we, we mention a lot in your book about flowing and use of, of the terms of water, uh, torrents and uh, torrents of refugees, for example. What do you make of those references when you're talking about migrants and, and how it relates to your political philosophy? Well, yeah, the rhetoric is absolutely um, all over the place. I mean, there's 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 not a moment when the, the U.S. and even uh, Western Europe, especially now after the refugee crisis, the language is just. I mean, even by uh, you know the the president of the EU, the language is there's these floods. It's a chaos. They're they're over overwhelming us of these torrents and things like that. Um, these are this is a there's a whole book written about this um, called uh, dangerous uh, uh, brown tide rising, hmm. and it's about you the usage of this metaphor of the dangerous waters. It's the most sing single most common metaphor used to describe migrants in the press is dangerous waters. So you can think of floods, you can think of hurricanes, torrents, um, uh, all kinds of other other language about waters, and it's not neutral waters. The flood of migrants, the floods are not good. Floods are bad. So one side of this is that um, – and this is the perspective of, of, of the author of the book and many others – is that it dehumanizes migrants by calling them waters and making them this natural, dangerous, inhuman force. It's dehumanizing and depoliticizing them. Um, my argument is a little bit different, which is that actually – those that water, uh, even that this metaphor is absolutely throughout the history of the West, is um, it's it's a it's a constitutive um, force as well. That waters not only sort of tear things down, but things kind of emerge um, out of the waters, um, and that life itself emerges from the water. So the, it's not. I don't think it's simply a negative metaphor. I think there's something positive to it. Thomas, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate it. 
Thank you for having me. Thomas Nail is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Denver University. Read an excerpt from his book, The Figure of the Migrant, at cprnews.org. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. When winter strikes Colorado, so do the traffic headaches. A multi-car pileup coming down the mountain brought traffic to a standstill for hours. Are we heading to Breckenridge and Keystone? But at this stage, uh, I don't know. It'll probably be spring. No place is worse, many say, than I-70 during ski season. In response, the Colorado Department of Transportation has plows and crews at the ready, and the agency is also stepping up enforcement of laws, like requiring chains under certain icy conditions. I spoke with CDOT spokeswoman Amy Ford late last year about changes the agency is making to make driving I-70 this winter less stressful. So there seems to be much more emphasis this season on putting the responsibility for a smooth I-70 drive squarely on drivers. Why is that? Uh, well, we're all in it together, obviously. Yeah. We are doing our part, and it's significant with our plows and how we how we manage traffic. But the drivers have a big place to play in this. In fact, 60% of our congestion is actually caused by incidents. And when you're driving in the mountains in the winter, usually those incidents are related to your tires. And it's people that don't have the right equipment on their, on their cars. Sadly, yes. And I think we've gotten accustomed to modern cars that they could just take us anywhere and and handle any condition that nature throws at us. And the reality is it actually does make a difference if you have the right tires and how you drive the corridor. You have these laws that you're going to put into effect. Uh, Let's talk about the first one that that I think people have questions about, uh, the traction law. Mm -hmm. What do drivers need to know when that's in effect? Well, the reality is is these laws have been around for a while, but over time, they sort of fell out of uh, enforcement in a sense. Why was that? You know, I think, again, back to cars and people thinking that the cars could handle the conditions they are. You know, we all drove our 70s and 80s cars with your sandbags in the back and that kind of thing as you knew that they just didn't have the ability to drive these corridors. Today, with our modern cars, we thought they could. But the reality is, now nah, we're still getting used to the fact that we need good tires. So traction law, here's right. what it is. When we have this code and it's pulled when we have really snowy conditions, and you're usually going to see it around the same time that we actually require chucks to put chains on their trucks. Got it. So it's going to happen usually around the same time. What that means is you must have good tires. And when I say must you have good tires, this is what that means. Okay. Either you have snow tires mm-hmm. Or you have tires with something called an M and an S designation, which means mud and snow. Or you have a four-wheel drive, and that means all four wheels are engaged. But those tires have to have at least an eighth-inch depth tread. So it has to be a deep enough tread that it actually works. If you don't have any of those things, you have to have chains or an alternative traction device in your car. So it's fairly open. You've got a variety of options on how you can actually meet this traction law, but the reality is is you need to have those conditions. And if you don't, you and you cause an accident, that kind of deal, Colorado State Patrol could come upon you and you could get a fine up to 650 bucks. So how can people tell if their tires are actually compliant with with what you're talking about, this MS designation. Right. Well, a couple of things. If you're looking at your snow tires, if you have a snow tire, it's actually going to have a mark on it. It's a snowflake. You will see it on the tire. That means it's a snow tire. If it's MS, literally the words M, you'll see the letter M slash S on your tire and it's on the rim. All season tires don't always have the MS designation. And that's what something people need to go and look to see if they do. And I understand tires are expensive and that MS designation makes them even a little bit more expensive. So those are the two things you need to look for. And then tread, we've talked about this a lot. And we mm-hmm. talked about it a lot last year. The good tread, the way you test it is with a quarter. And you the put, quarter test, yeah. The quarter test, exactly. You take George Washington's head, you put it in head side down into your tread. And if his head is covered at all, you're good to go. You've got an eighth inch tread. If it is not covered, you 
you do not have an eighth inch tread. And you need to do that actually all around the tire to make sure that you've got good tread really throughout the tire. So what you're saying, if you have four-wheel drive or all-wheel drive and an MS tire, but there's not that tread... You're still you're still going to get get a fine if you're pulled over. You're right. Like the that. tread the tread is really the key here. You know, you've got stopping distances too with these different tires. So just as an example, if you have a summer tire, an all season tire that doesn't have the MS, it takes you almost 800 feet to stop in a snowy mm-hmm. condition. If you have the MS designation, that drops down to about 400 500 feet. If you have a snow tire, a real snow tire, you stop within two to 300 feet. So it the 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 difference is vast when it comes to the quality of the tire. And again, that's on the side of your tires. You can check where that is. On the side, exactly. CDOT spokeswoman Amy Ford. When we come back, how CDOT plans to keep delays on I-70 during winter weekends to around 75 minutes. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Let's rejoin our conversation now with CDOT's Amy Ford recorded late last year on changes the agency is making to relieve the headaches of driving the I-70 mountain corridor this winter. Every time it snows, there seems to be a certain group of drivers with four-wheel drive or all-wheel drive who drive really aggressively. I think it goes back to your earlier point about we think our cars can kind of drive themselves. Is it safe for these vehicles to drive faster than the rest of traffic? You know, no. And we always talk about this. Four-wheel drive does not mean four-wheel stop. And when the mountains, the stopping is what matters. And Mm -hmm. that's why the tires and the tread matter so much, too, on these cars. So drive for the conditions as well. And that's why you're going to see us doing our part of all of this with our snow plows and how we handle the conditions. Conditions. We're going to do everything we can to make the conditions as good as we can. This year, we're going to have 106 plows in that area. That's a ramp up from what we've done in the previous years past. We have surged mechanics up there to make sure that the plows are running and running smoothly. And we're going to continue all of our activities where we did, for instance, snowplow escorts, where we held traffic, for instance, before it came onto mainline I-25 or I-70 at Silverthorne and at Copper and yeah. Frisco. And we actually brought you up behind snowplows to make sure that you could go all the way up the hill through I-70. Eisenhower Tunnel. These are some of the things that we're going to continue to do because they actually had great effect for us last year. When you travel on the weekends, everyone expects a delay. There's just volume. 75 minutes is typically the delay when you travel on the weekends versus, let's say, if you travel during the weekday. Our goal was to make that 75-minute delay as reliable as we could. So if you plan that you're going to spend 75 minutes extra in the corridor, that's what we wanted to do. We were able actually to reduce the times that we went over that 75-minute delay by about 26% last year using some of these techniques. And frankly, the driver's really doing their part as well. And you plan on on increasing that this year to lowering that number? That's, That's our goal. I mean, if we can truly keep it to that 75 minute delay, that would be awesome, which means that your hour and a half drive goes to about a two plus hour drive. And that's because of the volume. How are you deploying this driver education? How are you getting it out to the people? Very actively. And one, talking to folks like you, um, you're going to start seeing us running advertising, actually, on television. Uh, we work actively with the rental car companies, uh, with the resorts, uh, information and script pads, for instance, that you'll see at visitor centers and at uh, you know uh, gas stations, et cetera, along the corridor. We have been out at the Ski Expo. In fact, you saw bald men walking around at Ski Rex and Sneagrab uh, this Labor Day saying, who's balder, me or your tires, really is a way of starting that conversation again about making sure that you've got the equipment to drive the corridor. I, I also, before we move on, talk about the passenger vehicle chain law. I've not heard of that before. What does that mean? So this steps it up. So what okay. you'll see is you'll see the traction law or code 15 go into place a lot in this this winter season. 
What the next step is is Code 16, which is a passenger vehicle chain law. Okay. Very rare for us, but what it means is that the conditions are such that you literally can't drive the corridor unless you have chains on your car. And that really is a precursor for us to, frankly, shutting the road down. But um, it can happen occasionally. It's happened once or twice in the last few years. But when we do pull that, we're very, very serious about needing to have chains to drive in the corridor. So just chains or there are there other traction devices? That chains can... or alternative traction devices. And alternative traction devices, when I say things like like an auto sock. Okay. It's, it's more of a sort of a cloth sock that fits around your tire. A little easier to put on, so some people use that instead. And we'll have a video of what an auto sock is on our website, cprnews.org. Uh, are there fines? There are fines. And this is where we're partnering with Colorado State Patrol. But people understand that we're not doing proactive enforcement. So in other words, we pull the traction law. We're not going to pull everyone off the corridor and check your tires and then send you on your way to make sure that you're okay. If you get into an accident or if you have spun out and Colorado State Patrol comes upon you, they will, and the code has been pulled, they can have an opportunity to look at your car. They see that you have inadequate tires or equipment. You could get a fine ranging anywhere, frankly, from $150 up to $650. I have to ask this question. You know, Tires are really expensive. The fine is really expensive. For some people, that's that's hard to afford, especially uh, people who may have an undue burden getting their tires up, up to date because they have to go to work and things like that. Uh, how do you how do you is this an undue burden on low wage workers? No, because your time is valuable too. And so there's a cost to your time. And when we have people who cause accidents in the corridor because they're not prepared, think about the impacts that that does on the delays for people who are trying to get home and the like. So we actually find that while tires are expensive, and that's actually one of the reasons that we've teamed with tire companies actually around the state to offer discounts. In fact, if you're on our website, we have an interactive map that shows discounts on where you can go to get tires. But um, we, we think the value of this in all of those folks' time compared to the fine that you might get should you uh, impact everyone's traffic is, is frankly a burden that uh, people should be prepared to share. CDOT's Amy Ford speaking to me late last year. You can find more winter driving tips for your trip to the mountains at cprnews.org. Ahead of Valentine's Day, we're looking at love letters or notes or maybe a text message or email. Would you share what has made your heart swoon? So send that on over to us. Email at news at uh, news.cpr.org. Also connect with Colorado Matters on Facebook, CPR News, or follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters. Thanks to Michael Hughes and Cream Maddox, our engineer and director for today. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.